there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Who's had more influence on British football, Pep or Fergie? Pochettino is a great appointment, but it might be the wrong club. He's taking the basis, a chicken, sure. yeah, and he's putting a rocket, a rocket yeah, up I'll to the world. Ice cream. Yeah, this yeah. is what I mean, right? There are, I'm sure, some cults in history where you followed the person. If you look at Johan Cruyff, if you look at the history of Barcelona as an, as an institution, it has been about the text, That's right? So good, <laughs> yeah. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Ripple Effect with myself. James Alcott and I've got one of my good friends in the old football media industry the voice the best voice in my opinion of talk sports he's also does the EFL highlights as well on ITV Hugh Woosencroft also my mate from ESPN as well <laughs> we go way back this man is such a lovely man right that we were, I was watching England Wales I think and we were trying to meet up in oh, Qatar mate. we were trying to meet up in Qatar we were trying to meet up in Qatar and it didn't happen in the end but we did actually meet for a second because Hugh walked all the way around <laughs> a stadium just to come and shake my hand that's the kind of guy we've got on the show today um how are you mate I'm good man I'm good busy busy year busy season and I think a lot of people in our industry are fatigued we're like we're like the Man United squad. We, 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 <laughs> jaded. We're, we're jaded. We're okay. just getting over the line at this point in time okay. um, for a lot of people being on a roller coaster. It's, it's a great job, best job in the world, but um, long season. But we've got enough energy for one podcast, right, Hugh? Yeah, man. And especially with the Ripple Effect's good. I've, people sort of, after doing the podcast, they'll go, do you know what? I really enjoyed that because you could kind of think of, well, what could happen, what should happen. In today's podcast, I'm going to do the quickfire ripples with Hugh. And then I think we could touch on the the season and the state of play, but uh, which isn't even in my running order. But I just kind of want to talk it through with Hugh because Hugh does a thing where he goes and ha- has these amazing takes, but we're not recording. <laughs> so that's why I wanted to tell him to shut up <laughs> so that we could get it all. Um, but we were also, we were chatting, me and Kai were chatting about uh, Kira McKenna and Michael Carrick. And we thought, oh, okay. you know, those are two sort of OGS disciples, quite possibly, going to social, going off and doing their own thing, which is interesting as a talking point on its own. But then I started to think a little bit deeper, and we we're thinking of disciples from uh, different uh, managers, and you know, where does it all sort of head back to? What is the ripple effect of certain managers managing certain players? So the word of the week this week is disciple, a person who believes in the ideas and principles of someone famous. Interesting. Someone famous and tries to live uh, the way that person does or did. I guess Jesus was famous. So, yeah, okay, fair <laughs> enough. That works. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have a look into that. And uh, it is interesting, the sort of germination of sort of the, the philosophies of, of different um, footballers and football managers. We'll also talk about Poch who is, I mean, all but announced, as is all things actually nowadays. It feels like everything's announced like a week before it's actually yeah. announced. Is that just the is that the Fabrizio Romano effect? This or? got announced about four weeks ago, right? didn't it? There's Pochettino who's been negotiating his contract and whatnot, but they're gonna get it over the line. Yeah. Let's talk about Poch. He's got a big job on his hands. Yeah, we will. We'll talk about the five things that 
Poch needs to do to thrive. They, do you know what? There might even be six or seven. We will see how we get on. Let's get into the quickfire ripples. And we're also going to touch on, I want to touch on Southampton for a second because I think it's interesting. We, we actually did a podcast last week. You might not have caught it because obviously there is so much content out there right now. But honestly, really, really loved doing it. We chatted with different relegation uh, sort of content creators of, for the rele- relegation battle. So spoke with uh, Harry actually from... Uh, the Saints score, which is a Southampton podcast. And actually, I listened back to it uh, this morning and I thought it was really, really interesting, some of the stuff he said. So if you want to get a kind of a view from the lens of those fans uh, who know much better than than myself and even Hugh, then uh, go and check out that, that podcast. Uh, have a good chat about what happens if any of these teams get relegated and Southampton have, so we can have a quick chat about that. Right, quick fire ripples. I put this out on Twitter. And actually, final bit of admin, if you are new to the podcast and you enjoy yourself, do me a favour, support the podcast, hit the follow button wherever you're listening to. And if you are on Spotify, give us a five-star rating. I think you can get a five-star rating wherever you are. But just uh, it's a couple of clicks. Massively appreciate it. Right, quick fire ripples. This is from Matt. So this is interesting. I, I, I wasn't aware of this. But Brighton are obviously flying mm-hmm. right now. And Brighton staying up... It, Ahead of us, and when I say ahead of us, that's Cardiff City in the 2018-19 season because of that Chelsea game. Now, I wasn't aware of that Chelsea game, but it was a game between uh, Chelsea and Cardiff, and there was a goal from Aspilicueta that allowed them to sort of get over the line. And in terms of points, it was 36 points to Cardiff's 34 at the end of the season. In terms of the development of a football club, just hanging in there and surviving... Mm. That first season can be so, so integral. You know, we've got a team like Bournemouth that have sort of bounced up and down a few times. Mm. And it is every year you've got, got, got to be able to go again. But for what Brighton have gone on to achieve, it could have been so different, couldn't it? Yeah. I, listen, I often talk about you need to consolidate in the Premier League once you get there. So for, for five years after you've been promoted... In my opinion, you shouldn't really care about the football. Right. If you want to be a Premier League club, obviously, yeah. if you want to be entertained every week on your season ticket and that's all you care about, then totally fair enough. Mm. But if you're if you're one of those fans that's like, oh, we want to be in the big time, we want to be considered a Premier League club, I think it takes five years for us just to get settled with the idea that you're a Premier League club. So if Brentford go down in the next three years, I don't think we should be surprised, as good as they've been since right. they come up. Yeah. Because in my opinion they're not yet a Premier League club the thing is even after five years you're not yet really a Premier League club you're just you know now what it takes to to stay in sure. the Premier League but you can't stand still we're seeing that with Leicester yeah, aren't we exactly so then you build for the next five years in terms of consolidating a, a maybe trying to get to mid-table or mm. 10th to 15th in my opinion you take it in incremental steps yeah. so if a, if, if a club comes up and I say to you it, it should be 20 years before you're going for Europe, people are like, that's mad. 20, wow. But... I mean, Brighton have sort of jump-started that a little bit, haven't they? But, but it's a gentle thing unless you have something yeah. radical about your football club, which makes a difference. That's a good word to use. I think gent- like, I was uh, working with Glenn Murray recently and, and he sort of you know scored the goals to kind of keep them up uh, and a few teams actually over the years. But uh, my view on it is that to, you can't... Well, I think you can't go up and play like Brighton straight away. And even what I think we've learned this year, which has been interesting with Fulham and Bournemouth, two teams that everyone, absolutely everyone said weren't going to stay up this year. And I'm actually, I'm really annoyed at my predictions at the start of the year because I sort of, I was like, Fulham destroyed the league last year. And Bournemouth still had a lot of players that were still sort of in development, so to speak. 
Um, but it still obviously su- surprised us all. Bournemouth actually put a tweet out, uh, which oh, went yeah, everywhere. Did you loved see it? it? Loved I just about got away with it. I think because <laughs> they started to do well and I sort of backed them a bit. So I think either that or they're just not aware of my content, which is heartbreaking. But uh, but yes, there's a line from Rory, bless him, who goes, yeah, Bournemouth are going down and in other news, water is wet. Um, it turns out it's not the case. But the thing I think is interesting there with Bournemouth and Fulham, in terms of the team going up and coming down, is they sort of yo-yoed up and down a few times. And so, be, or, or at least they've been able to retain that, that utilise those parachute payments. Mm. Whereas the Stokes, the QPRs of the past, haven't been able to kind of y- utilise it correctly and get themselves back up. Um, but they, those two teams were able to come up with quite solid squads and actually only needed that little bit of extra stardust, maybe less so Bournemouth, to give themselves a chance. But I do think what Brentford have done has been similar to what Brighton have done, which is get up, stay up in a in quite a sort of practical style. And now I think you'll see it with Brentford as well. They're going to look to sort of turn the dial, as you mm. say, gently mm-hmm. uh, over the next few few weeks. Br- oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. But Brighton are just... Love I just it. love Brighton, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. They've slapped up everyone. <laughs> Absolutely everyone. It's amazing. Uh, Trossard, did he make the wrong decision? Mel says this. <laughs> he says, Leandro Trossard kicked up a fuss in January and left the country without the club's permission. Feels, it feels a bit harsh, doesn't it? You can't just leave the, you can't leave the country. As he wanted to win the Premier League title with Arsenal. Brighton then sold Trossard to Arsenal in that window. Fast forward to today's game, Leandro Trossard gives the ball away, which, or oh, this was yesterday, obviously, gives the ball away, which directly led to Brighton's second goal against Arsenal, all but ending their title hopes completely. It's poetry in motion. <laughs> I think he just enjoyed it rather than he thinks it was a ripple effect. He's just like, yeah, yeah. Really, he really loved that moment. What's, what I find really interesting about these quickfire ripple effects, and again, so uh, on Twitter, at uh, James Alcott, two L's, two T's, what it is is generally it's to promote injustice that they felt or promote like how they are they're really clever mm-hmm. and things like that which I'm, I'm i'm all you know i'm here for that uh but yeah trossard i'm not totally having this one i'll be honest because no. i think they would have lost anyway <laughs> yes true one they would have lost anyway secondly i don't think they would have won well they weren't wouldn't have won the premier league anyway thirdly they wouldn't have got to this situation if trossard hadn't come through the door mm. is that fair yeah yeah um has he still made the right move? Trossard. Yeah. 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 Champions League football. Uh, it's not that. It's more like the stage of his career and the, the chances that he might have to go to, with all due respect to Brighton, you know, a really big club in the shape of Arsenal. Yeah. I think for him, he just wanted that. And um, in that respect, it's the right decision for him. Obviously, in terms of football, we can debate where Arsenal and Brighton might be over the next five years. But even that, you know, if he stays there for the next few seasons... Good chance he wins something with Arsenal. He might not with Brighton. Well, we should probably talk about Arsenal for a second. Uh, how how do you feel about this? Again, as someone sort of on the inside, where we have to predict a lot of the time. Yeah. And I felt like this year there was a sort of sense check every week of, are they still, is this now a title race? Mm. Are they still in the title race? Have they bottled the title race? Mm. How do you feel about Arsenal's season i woke up this morning with a t- with a tweet from someone just saying a penny for the thoughts of hugh wasn't <laughs> who said manchester city would not go on a a, a double figure right. winning run before the end of the season <laughs> that's great even after arsenal had been beaten by city at the etihad i was like they've still got a chance to win the league i don't see you know particularly the last two games brentford brighton i think city could slip up for sure especially if those two teams are fighting for stuff and i looked at it and anyway a while back i'd said 
you know, City are just not the relentless winning machine that they once were. Mm. Clearly, they still are. But, yeah. um, but you know, in terms of Arsenal, the only thing that's annoying me at the moment is Arsenal fans not quite being able to decide where they are. Yes. Who they are. Like, let's be honest, if you're an Arsenal fan and you're coming out and you're saying it's not fair to say we bottled the league, I can totally agree with that. Okay. I can understand that. And if you're an Arsenal fan that's coming out and saying, we're going to be challenging for the title for the next five seasons because we're such a serious team, I can understand that. You've been brilliant this season. But I'm sorry, if you are... <laughs> this a, is why we got you on. I love it. <laughs> but if you're a serious team to the point that you're prepared to say, we're going to challenge for the title for the next five years and win loads of stuff under Arteta, then you bottled it. Because you're saying that this sure. team is well. a serious team. And a serious team wouldn't have won two in seven going for the okay. title. So, I love that. Are Arsenal a serious team? That's the question. Yeah. So, because at the start of the season, they weren't a serious team. They had they had some of the, they had the potential to be a serious team. No, I always but now thought... now it's got to the eye of the storm. Because what I would suggest is... And everyone's... It's amazing, this word bottle, how, how you know prevalent it is now. The, the bottom line for me is that the the mental load that Arsenal had to deal with alongside some injuries meant that they did not beat Southampton and they did not beat West Ham. They were able to destroy a Chelsea team that on paper looks good and is a big name, but that is a terrible football, football team yeah. and a football club that's in a mess right now. And Newcastle went and won, so that was a great result there. But this this is one of those games where I felt like they looked knackered. They looked knackered from the mental load of it because it's not about the fixture congestion. So if I I would be sort of wary of suggesting that they totally are a serious team because I think expectations is everything in football mm. and it can really affect affect how you play and how, and how you get results and actually importantly how the opposition plays against you as well so my fear for Arsenal next season is that they will be I, I wonder if they're able to cope with the the higher expectations the higher quality of opposition in Europe where it will matter whereas you're, you're, you're the Europa League they're able to sort of wiggle their way through quite easily and also the new idea that when, again when we're sort of predicting at the start of the season Champions League is a, is a bare minimum whereas no one really put them there. So yeah. can they deal with that and, and be a serious team? Do you think they've got that, that in them? Or is there going to be a post-traumatic stress from what's happened this year? They need to recruit. I get it. And they've been through... You think they still need to recruit? Of course they do. What, in terms of just, depth? Just depth. They, depth they've yeah. used the fewest players, I think, in terms of their starting lineup. They've made the fewest changes. Something like that anyway. But yeah. Arsenal have relied on basically, you know, 16, 17 players throughout the season. Yeah, so right. in that regard, it's been brilliant Which from Arteta. part of the strength of them as well, right? But... but, it, but it, when it comes down to the 90 minutes that have affected them throughout the season, players have made errors that they probably shouldn't have made, like a serious team probably doesn't make. The manager hasn't reacted in a way to setbacks. He's been, firstly, in terms of his demeanour on the touchline, I don't think he's helped them in those key moments. He hasn't cut a figure of calmness or cool, coolness when it came down to key moments during the season. And again, I'm not. this is not me hammering them. This is me saying they need to learn from all these things to be a really serious team. And because yeah. loads of them are really young players, everyone is assuming they will learn from it. And I get all of those things. But it doesn't mean they definitely will. They can learn from it. Do you see what I mean? So, yeah. so for, for for me to sit sit here and say this Arsenal team has what it takes for the next five years, 
I, I, I just sit back and I think it's a huge missed opportunity. In my mind, I'm like, oh, if Real Madrid wanted Martin Erdegaard, where would he go? What would he if PSG want William Saliba? What would he do? Right. In my heart of hearts, I'm like, this was your opportunity. I'm not hammering them, but I'm saying, if Arsenal finish fourth next year, I won't be surprised. I'll yeah. say that was a good season. If they do better in the cups and they finish fourth, I'll still say that's a good season. I'm not going to hammer them. The, the problem is that expectation this season will have changed so much within the club externally as well that people will say. What happened to Arsenal this year? They weren't as good. They were meant to get better. And the bottom line is they fell, they fell away. And it's unfair. The standards are unfair. Like, Man City are a yeah, joke. Yeah. They're an utter joke. And that's what, like, with Pep Guardiola, like, I really kind of, I've sort, it sort of opened my eyes to him this year. It's just like, wow, like, yeah, God, ridiculous. you really are on, a, on another level. Because I, I, when I was talking about Arsenal, uh, this was a couple of weeks ago, I was going, to get to 90 points, come on. Like that's that's a championship winning season, but you just you've had Man City who are above you in the table, but it looks like they're at best they can get eighty seven points now, and so with that in mind, with the idea that you've got to be up here, you have to be perfect. They are, they're closer than anyone else by twenty odd points, pretty mm. much, but they are still miles off, which Listen, is which is sad, isn't it? It's it sad for football. Yeah. You can come to Man City and what what they mean for the Premier League in five titles in six years but I think for me all I'm saying is there's a huge assumption that Arsenal will get better because they have a trajectory so a young manager who's early on so he'll learn young young players I get all of those things they also have money and they have you know if Declan Rice goes to Arsenal people will be saying well and and I, I definitely think that he can transform them and make them regularly top two top three side because he's that good but I still sit back and I'm like, what, what, what do you think Man United are going to do? What do you think? I'm not saying that they're going to be a better footballing team, but I'm like, the competition is going to be so tough. And this season is such a huge, whether we like it or not, at the end of the road, it will be a disappointment if Arsenal win nothing and sure. finish second. Uh, to the point that people, someone said to me the other day, Man United have had a better season than them. I don't agree. Right. But if Man United finish top four and they win a trophy and Arsenal finish second and they win nothing... Sure. I know that, de- that, that debate yeah, yeah. will happen between fans. I think that's kind of embarrassing. Mm. But ultimately, I do think it, it will lend itself at least to the, the psychological element of it being a huge disappointment. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, you know, when you draw a line at, at the end of seasons as well, sort of all that exuberance and confidence kind of gets washed away a little bit. And then you, you look at the landscape again, and that can be very, very difficult. And I think that's the biggest, alongside, you know, yeah, the influx of very difficult games. I always think about uh, V.S. Boas, who was at Marseille, who had an amazing season, got them into the Champions League, and they got pumped yeah. <laughs> in the Champions League. Yeah, and he yeah. said, "You've got to be good. You've got to be brilliant to be terrible." And I just fear that with with Arsenal because we know the noise is loud when these top teams aren't winning every single game. You know, I, th- I think they'll be highly competitive. Arsenal again. This is not me saying they're going to fall off a cliff, but I do think it's premature to be saying this is a side that is going to get 85, 90 points yeah. next year and the year after that and the year after that and always be in the conversation. Like, I, 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 at this point, I don't see it. They've been, the football is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But, um, but they've, th- they've lost their way. But they de- have lost their but, way. But it's depth. It's depth. I think, this is the thing, next season, they're going to go further in the Cups. They, they just have to. They were barely, barely figured. They're in the Champions League, and although they're not playing on Thursday night, it's a higher level of opposition. You need better players. You need to rotate more. And then if you're going to keep it up in the Premier League, you know, City, the reason City have gone on this winning run at the end of the season is because there was a period where we were like, 
why are all these incredible players on the bench so much at City? I know Cancelo went out on loan, but Carl Walker was on the bench. De Bruyne was on the yeah. bench for a period of time. Gundogan was on the bench. You know, key players being left out. Foden's barely played. Foden's right? barely played. And we're going like, what is he doing? And then the last 15 games of the season, he went, right, guys, you've had a rest. Yeah. Here you go. That's it. I said that, that on this podcast, it's like his macro management is amazing. Yeah, yeah it's and I like you. It, so and this will come back around like there'll be a little wobble for them around Christmas time and we'll all just have to go shush because like he's done it time and again. It's amazing. We're going to talk about Pep a little bit later on. Tune polls. Uh, he's just sent me some pictures, but it's basically Kieran Clark getting a red card uh, that led to Joe Linton 2.0. That has no peg within the podcast. I know Newcastle still pushing for for top four, <laughs> uh, but a lot of people jumped on the back of that. So tune polls. I'll let you have your moment. Yes, without that, Joe Linton wouldn't have had to move in midfield, and we wouldn't have been able to enjoy uh, the uh, Joe Linton effect. And actually, could it keep Leeds up? Because he gave away a penalty, didn't he, against Firpo, <laughs> who. Kieran Carling, who's a very funny man, great YouTuber, Man City fan, described him in a WhatsApp group as a walking bomb scare. For both. <laughs> I was like, that is bang on. Terrific. Um, yeah. de Grief, my boy, says Leeds buying Sinistera, whose goals at the start of the season could keep Leeds up, which I, I agree with. I think he's actually been one of those bright sparks. We've kind of forgotten about him, haven't we, because he's been in and outside. This exodus at Feyenoord, when Sinistera moved on, means that they have... Uh, they have to reinvest in the squad. The new squad then goes on to win the Eredivisie, meaning Arnie Slot goes to Leeds next season because they stayed up. Love a little ripple circle there. Um, do you think Leeds will stay up? It's possible. It's possible that uh, they've seen. I've seen a look at uh, an increase in intensity, and but basically the defence is just. So I, I, I did a podcast earlier on, and Gregor Robertson, who used to play for for Forest said to me the best thing to come out of this game was Furpo's red card. Wow. He, was, he was like, that might keep them up, him not playing the rest of the games this season. So that's how bad <laughs> that's he's crazy. been. So so in a way, there's a, there's a positive there. Funny one, that, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and final one. This one's uh, this rogue, but I like it. So here we go. Matt Weston sent me a, a DM. He said, okay, I may have stumbled across a ripple effect waiting to happen. So as we all know, Liverpool lost to Real Madrid in the Champions League the last two seasons on the trot, uh, which I'd argue is a fact in their struggles this year. With that in mind, around the start of the 22-23 season, uh, the city is unveiled, Liverpool, as the location for this year's Eurovision. Congratulations to Sweden, by the way. And Finland, what was that? I just don't get it. Anyway, <laughs> forget it. Um, the date of the song concert just so happens to be right in between the two legs of Real Madrid's Champions League semi-finals with Liverpool's domestic rivals Man City. The event taking place in Liverpool means that Everton can't play at Goodison Park on Saturday, forcing Manchester City to play on Sunday. I mean, they did navigate it quite easily. I got this before, uh, by the way. But it's still going to have a ripple effect because does Pep rotate? Yes, he did. And risk the title momentum? No, he didn't. And if he does, then Everton could pick up vital points and avoid relegation. That hasn't happened either. If not, does he risk suffering at the hands of Real Madrid, just as Liverpool did? Or are City too unstoppable and are just going to steamroll it? Well, part one, they've sorted out. But I think there was a ripple effect anyway in terms of the concentration from the Arsenal players, maybe in terms of keeping an eye on that game, it being right before their one. Did Parlon a new little dollop of... Uh, well, so probably a loss of focus, maybe, as well as the pressure of having to go and win that game. I wonder, is there anything in Man City maybe being a tiny bit tired for the Real Madrid game? 
Is there anything in that as well? No, Not having it? No, no, I don't think we would have it. But I think the ripple effect turned to Arsenal, didn't it, in the end? Because, uh, yeah, just something wasn't right against Brighton. But I always thought that was going to be a, a difficult one. Right, we're going to get into some deep ripple effects after this. Okay, still to come, we're going to talk about Pochettino at Chelsea. How does he sort out that mess? But first of all, we're going to go a bit rogue for a second. So managerial disciples, as we sort of teased at the start. I sort of chuck this at you, Hugh. I'm intrigued to know how you feel about it. You are a Man United fan as well. Mm-hmm. And Fergie uh, takes place uh, as part of this conversation. So managerial disciples is uh, what has got us to where we are today. Without great managers in the past, there can't be great managers in the present and future. The greats have all been mentored during their managerial infancy. And that is what causes the ripple effect of managerial disciples and allows new managers to come through. This week, we're going to talk about the best managerial disciples, as well as addressing the topical landscape of the Premier League after game week 36. We'll touch on that just a touch later. So there was a couple of names that sort of top jumped into our minds in terms of your work with uh, with the EFL this year. We should probably just touch on Michael Carrick and uh, Kieran McKenna for a mm. second, because two managers who uh, have sort of stepped into the breach. And I always say, like, those kind of managers... Sort of slim, young, first time at it. <laughs> they're, they're like the sexiest EFL managers. It used you to can be get. It used to be Zara, I mean? and now it's I think it's Hugo Boss now, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Same clothes, just different labels. Yeah, indeed. And but them sort of stepping in to, for the first time, and you know, figuring it out, and just bit like Vincent Company, for example, who we we should talk about is clearly a a disciple of of Pep's, who's got a few disciples. But Kieran McKenna and Michael Carrick, of course, sort of started out somewhat. I know Michael Carrick was involved with uh, Mourinho. Kieran McKenna's had quite a long um, managerial career, but they've both sort of worked with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And during that time, there was a lot of critique for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in terms of sort of his tactics with Manchester United. But two of his team have gone on to do really great, strong things. So does that allow us to sort of look back at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's time slightly differently or has he wasted some talent here? And generally, how do you feel about these these two guys? I wouldn't say he's wasted some talent. Obviously, they still worked for Manchester United after Solskjaer got sacked. So, you know, bear in mind, Carrick, I think, had four games in charge and didn't yep. didn't lose, did he? So, so they had an opportunity if they wanted to put him in charge. But I think, obviously, they were burnt after, you know, putting in an ex-player in the shape of Solskjaer, which clearly didn't work out and left the club a few years behind whatever trajectory it may have been on. Um, but actually, I think what's interesting about McKenna and and Carrick is you you do see hints of Guardiola's tactics in what they try and do. Oh, interesting. Carrick more heavily so yeah. um, in terms of the fullback moving into midfield a lot. Um, but I I do think they also they have an understanding of British football which makes a big difference um, in the EFL. Count the counter attack was big under Solskjaer. Being able to score goals on the on the break, exploit space. Rashford was a key exponent. Even Martial had a good season as well. Others too. So, in terms of you know several players hitting twenty goals in all competitions under Solskjaer, Man United. One of the reasons they weren't going to be a dominant team is because they were so good on the counter attack, but they couldn't control matches against 
um, against worse teams. So they almost pulled out loads of big results. You remember City and stuff like that when they were playing out from inside their own half. But um, when they had to go and dominate the opposition's half, control the, the, pl- the play and make chances, they weren't that, yeah. that good at it. Um, but actually, these teams being able to score on the break, Ipswich and, and Middlesbrough, you go, wow, OK. Mm. That reminds me a lot of, of Solskjaer's Manchester United. But control as well. You make a good point there. In terms of... It, this is what I think the sort of mixology of like the next... You know, those guys who go, okay, they'll take little elements from different people. Because, of course, you know, if Solskjaer doesn't get the job as and the relationship he has with, you know, Man United and, and Sir Alex Ferguson, that understanding of Man United, does Carrick stay in his job? And Carrick, of course, is, you know, a player who played under Sir Alex as well. But I think that opportunity for both of these managers to go and be in teams that have a, a solid percentage of talent when it comes mm. to their divisions. What you've seen in both of them, actually, is a little mix because I was listening to... Uh, um, I listen to articles now, by the way. So I, <laughs> I listen to an article. I listened to an article about Kieran McKenna and it was talking about... And, and then, sorry, one on Michael Carrick. And both of them offer up an element of freedom, which I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did at times. You know, it wasn't you know drilled and drilled and drilled there was that freedom which was another thing that Sir Alex Ferguson kind of allowed to a point but Kieran McKenna at Ipswich there's an understanding of the opposition and it's about pictures which I find really interesting he also has been sort of somewhat innovative in terms of bringing in Lee Grant the goalkeeper third choice goalkeeper at Man United for a few years and he's actually working with the attack which I find really Mm. really interesting to so to offer up new ideas and, and you know new angles of things Michael Carrick similar kind of thing in terms of you know allowing players to go and in terms of xg they've got more xg than burnley this year conceded a lot more goals as well um but he's another team that they want to dominate the ball they want to go and create chances and they want those players to sort of have an element of freedom and, but smart movement as well it's that sort of concoction of the two which i think is interesting when it comes to to both of these guys who do you think's got a, bit, a higher ceiling out of these two in terms of carrick and McKenna? I'd say they've got similar ceilings, to be honest. I wouldn't say one's clearly higher. I know that the reputation of McKenna as a coach was was massive. Obviously, I've spoken to Carrick a few times this season. His, his temperament, his personality. A lot of people talk about that. Yeah. A lot of people talk about that. I was, I was listening to um, an Under the Kosh episode, and it was the kit man, who's Ben Thornley's brother. I can't remember his name now. But he was saying how Carrick is a really interesting one in the fact that didn't talk much. No. But if he did talk, you listened. And I think that's a, a, that's a nice sort of element of a manager to, to have because he's got the gravitas as a, as a manager. But to have that sort of calmness and to sort of not speak too much is quite a, sort of, it's quite a smart move. It can spin in the other direction yeah. as well. But I think, yeah, him as a player, it feels like it's been a useful element to him as a manager yeah yeah I, re- I remember um speaking to him and I think a few days before Eddie Howe had been asked it was mid-season about you know being in the title race and he kind of said I'm not going to take it away from the fans at Newcastle I want to let them dream and then a, a few days later I thought oh, I'm going to ask Michael Carrick about promotion because they right. were they were absolutely flying and he was just like I haven't really thought about it. You know, it's I don't, I don't talk to the players about promotion. You know, it's like halfway right. through a 46-game season. Sure. He's like, we don't really talk about that. We just talk about the next game, and that's it. And I was like, 
Right, you know, bear in mind I'm a Man United fan, so I'm already like, yeah. oh my God, I'm going to yeah, meet yeah, Michael yeah. Carrick, he's going to be a football genius, you know, what England were missing all of those years, and I'm not saying he's not, no, but he's not trying to show off, he's mm. not trying to give you loads of information, some managers do that, they try and say, yeah, they, I don't know what, they're trying to put themselves sure, in the shop sure. window, so a lot of times when you speak to managers, they're kind of like, I want respect, and I want you to know exactly what, and he wasn't giving anything that away. That's sort of desire to inspire kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and, and Barry, I met him when he was a player at Manchester United as well and stuff, and you know he doesn't he's not here to get everyone on his side and and you know I'm not saying that Kieran McKenna does but you know it's it's refreshing to see a manager particularly one that's flying in the championship where you do start to see a lot of managers like right I want to get a Premier League job and I want to you know just basically say you know it's 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 a it's a calm situation it's not I'm it's not, calm it's calm no yeah I, I, I almost said it like that as well but, but but he I was he, it, it was it was entirely entirely serene which i was like wow bear in mind we're in the riverside pitch side you know fans are screaming his name and, and you know they were buzzing bear in mind sure um after a victory and then i haven't got to speak to kieran mckenna as yet but from what i've seen from his teams it's really intelligent coaching yeah um, yes, they have something that I think a lot of successful EFL teams need, which is kind of speed on the break. Um, but and, and they get bodies. He's also had a the lot. fortune of of you know a, a, lot a, of a lot of investment in yeah, that yeah, squad, yeah. which I think is important to, to note. But it sounds like his his attention to detail is really really impressive as well. And what I think is also, I don't know if this is a ripple effect of Kieran McKenna, but I think the state of play when it comes to management right now is X. And I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, but like. Being an ex-player means nothing nowadays. It's who's the smartest guy in the room, I think. And Ipswich were talking about how they found Kieran McKenna. And the way they did it was that they were sort of looking at who the, you know, who the best managers to a point on the continent that you could get, who are the best ones in the championship that we could go and get. And then they sort of were looking at, it's quite exhaustive, algorithms, data, all that stuff. And then they had a look at, okay, what about people that haven't managed yet? And Kieran McKenna sort of came to the fore when it comes to that. QPR, Michael Beal, who's obviously mm. gone on to Rangers as well. I think people are open, opening their eyes a little bit to an understanding that just because you haven't managed yet, or I know Kieran McKenna, was, his career was cut very, very short. I think he was 22. But yeah, there are nooks and crannies in terms mm. of finding that smart guy these days. And we're seeing more and more of them in the EFL, aren't we? Loads. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, people often now ask me about the EFL. How do you think this team will do? And I'm just like, you know, there are good players there now and there are very good coaches. Yes. Very, very good coaches. Like a lot of the championship managers, you watch the Premier League and stuff and you're like, this guy could do a really good job at that club. And, you know, it used to be like, oh, he hasn't proven himself at the top level. You know, there are good players that are obviously, you know, football is... An ecosystem, there are loads of good players, loads of ex-Premier League players, some in League One now, mm. you know, loads in the championship as well. You've been at that level, which is another reason why I think, you know, the personality of, oh, they won a Champions League. Like, is there's players that are like, well, I, I played for Barcelona when I was a kid. And, like, yeah. you know, they, they've been around people that have won lots of things. So for them, it is about what you're going to do for my career, how good a coach are you. And when you speak to the players, they're just, blow, some managers just, they're blown away by and you, mm. just, you totally get why. Um, the managers doing well at their individual clubs, and it's because the, the players really take to their methods. That is now more important than, you know, what did you win during your career? You know, that, that stuff's gone. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be exceptional these days. And this kind of leads us on maybe to Alex Ferguson's disciples yeah. here, yeah, because yeah. there's sort of, um, there's 37, we think. There's probably even more, you know, out there. Mm. And in terms of the names, just to reel off sort of some of the guys that have, 
have done really well. And we sort of had that sort of second uh, level of um, Carrick and McKenna. Although Carrick, I think, is straight off, you know, because he was an ex-player for them. But you've got Phil Neville, Gary Neville, Mark Robbins, Darren Ferguson, Roy Keane, Solskjaer, Steve Bruce, Mark Hughes, who's managed a lot of games. Obviously, he's at Bradford at the moment. Um, Rob Edwards uh, was someone that he managed, if you want to keep going with it. And actually, let me know as well if you do spot any ones that I've, I've missed here. And Lauren Blanc, who, of course, was uh, the manager for, for PSG, so has done pretty well himself as well. But overall, it's pretty disappointing, isn't it? If you think of that, that you know, the old adage of, you know, if you're a great captain, great leader on the pitch, then you're going to be able to do it as a manager. And Ferguson, for someone who's obviously provided an environment that's very well understood, was a, uh, one that allowed players to f- flourish and win. What's going on here? Why, why is, you know, why is there such failure? When Overall, let's be honest, you know, you could chuck in Alex McLeish, Gordon Strachan maybe in there as well, since the times, times at Aberdeen who've done, done some good stuff. And look, it's tough to be a successful manager, yeah. but you would, have, you would have imagined there would have been a bit more success, no? It's, it's a weird one. I want to start by giving Sir Alex some credit, really, because... Where you, you need to be at a club for a, a length of time and you need to have a particular level of success for anyone to actually be considered one of your disciples. Sure. So ultimately, you know, I'm thinking who could possibly have disciples? You know, there might be, I mean, you might say latterly Guardiola, okay, and, and Mourinho, you know, in terms of the longevity, sure. success. Maybe Ancelotti might end up having some disciples in mm-hmm. the end of it. But... um you know there Bielsa, aren't there, yeah there aren't there aren't going to be that many Bielsa yeah it's a good one um, Arsene Wenger have the players that played for him gone on to have great managerial careers I can't think really? of any not, not really so the fact that they've had kind of middling <laughs> managerial careers I'm almost like oh, he's, he's done quite well yeah <laughs> you know, like is this one where the sort of the style of play of both those managers when you talk about Arsene Wenger and, and Fergie we can chuck Arsene Wenger in there as well. For Arsene Wenger, it was uh, it's called relationism, isn't it? And we you see that with Ancelotti, and he's doing the same thing at Real Madrid and doing it beautifully. But I think there's a, I think that's a talent in itself in terms of being able to understand. Okay, we're not going to have this really structured positionalism that you see with say Pep Guardiola, and they're going to go where they want to use that word that I keep hearing all the time vibes. She's going to be a bit more <laughs> about the vibes. And with Arsene Wenger, it was like that. You see that gorgeous, you know play all the time with them with Fergie it was it was always attacking football but it, it didn't truly have its own you know rubber stamped yeah, yeah, ideology yeah. that was sort of okay take this player out bring that next player in and maybe the sort of broad strokes of British football this idea of generally two up top generally great wingers Kinchelskis Giggs you know Sharp and Beckham and all those kind of players, then two good midfielders who could do a bit of everything. Mm. Why? Yeah. Do you think it's the fact that when it comes to disciples, actually you just need a bit of a blueprint. And for Fergie, it was, it was, it was maybe a more, it was a simpler time. I, I do think that. I think when Ferguson decided to retire, he kind of chose the right time because football has changed dramatically since. Um, and really it boils down to a couple of things for me, which are technology and sports science, and and I think technology plays a part in the sports science as well. Do you think there's a a dwindling of Fergie's style of leadership and and a yeah, power of it because it. It, it is such a tactical sport now? Well, that's it. I think 
when you look at Ferguson's leadership and, and what made him a, su a success as a coach, it was individual, personality-driven coaching and, and management. You hear all the stories about how he had someone at every nightclub and he kept an eye on his players. He'd pop round to their houses and he'd tell them about themselves and all, all this stuff, you know. Yeah. And it was always about a culture of following whatever he said. And um, I don't think now if you did many... Uh, you know, if you went on many leadership courses, they'd say the best way to run your organization is to basically be the king, hold yeah. everything around, everything that comes out of your mouth and people following that to a T, you'd be like, right. With an okay. element of fear, right? Yeah, with an element of fear. But I, ultimately, I think because they were a winning culture, because they had so much success, you were going to listen to him anyway, really. Yeah. You know, it wasn't really about being scared about of him, sorry. It was more being scared to lose on lose out on all the trophies and success and money that came with being part of Manchester United. And it was essentially his way or the highway. I'm not taking away from him as a, as a coach and a yeah. tactician, but what I'm saying is if there are types of cults, if you like, and types of disciple, there are, I'm sure, some cults in history where you followed the person. And where you were disciples of the person, whatever mm. they said you did. Right. And there were others where you were disciples of the text, if you like. Interesting. You see what I mean? Yeah, I love that. Right. And I think that if you look at Johan Cruyff, you look at the history of Barcelona as an, as an institution, it has been about the text. That's right? so good, Hugh. <laughs> it, it has been about, it's been about the text. So whether mm. it was Johan Cruyff in charge or whether Xavi, Enrique or um, whoever's been in charge since him, you know, it's always been about what are our... What are our... Yes, yeah, our, well, uh, uh, 10... Yeah. I the word now. Yeah, I don't want to offend anyone, but yeah, you know sure. what I mean? Yeah, loads of, loads of religions yeah, 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 are loads available. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, but what are, the, what are the concepts that we believe in? Yeah. You know, and ultimately that's the tactics that have come out of Barcelona, come out of the way that they've run the academy, La Masia, over the years. And everyone that comes through that system stays true to that. So it doesn't mm. matter. It won't matter with respect when they all pass away in terms of that organisation and the football that it wants to play. And actually, I think Manchester United were about Ferguson. So when he walked out of the door, it was like, what do we do now? It was yes. Like, it was like an empty room, basically. Well, so, I mean, I want to come back to some of the ripple effects from Man United. We'll do that. But because we're talking about Johan Cruyff, I think there's all roads do seem to lead to the text mm. of, of Johan Cruyff. It obviously comes from his mind and Guardiola speaks about him so so much and he talks about his first year as a coach at Barcelona he, he would go and talk to him time and time again the one thing I didn't think just while it's in my mind I wonder the ruthlessness of Guardiola in the last 18 months I think that that element of fear I think we're that's that feels quite Fergie to me. It is, it is. It feels very Fergie to me. Now, Johan Cruyff is always uh, sort of talking about more and more and more. You need to understand why you're getting better and that can allow you to have that desire to continue to get better. But in terms of that understanding of freshness mm. and to retain those standards, like with the Cancelo change or Foden being out of the team for quite some time this year, all those changes, Sterling being sort of, you know, discarded, Jesus a little bit mm. as well. It's interesting that that idea of needing to. I heard a great analogy the other day of if you've got a, like a, a swimming pool with like beautiful water in it, you still have you still need fresh water after a while. Like you have to keep, otherwise it's just going to get stale. Water, you know what I mean. <laughs> but, the, but with with uh, Guardiola, there is that one element I do think. But as you say, when it comes to the text, say Guardiola, Coman, and from Guardiola down, you've got Xavi. Uh, Arteta, Vincent Company, we've seen 
uh, a huge sort of again another little uh, sort of addition in terms of the sort of germination of it. But even someone like Eric Ten Hag from Bayern Munich has found his way there as well. Uh, Rijkaard, Laudrup, Lopetegui, uh, Ernesto Valverde. Now there's a lot of names there that are aligned with two clubs in particular, Ajax and Barcelona. And so coming back to to Man United and why that hasn't occurred is that all these names that we're talking about, aside from Solskjaer, they never got the chance. They haven't had the chance. And in terms of creating that pathway, Johan Cruyff has done that from top to bottom at Barcelona. And it's been, uh, in, they've retained it. And Xavi's the latest. Man United, it's just, it's just not there, is it? it was, was there a mistake made there in terms of David Moyes being that first, that first guy? Or, or the sort of quickness of which Fergie left? Should he really have been a bit more conscientious and, and, uh, and had a pathway in place? It, it was interesting. I mean, it did say something about, like I say, the culture of the organisation, that Ferguson basically had the choice of manager to replace him. And there are some elements, just to say quickly, mm. Man United, obviously, the academy at Man United has obviously been, that, that lives on in terms yeah. of the legacy of, of Ferguson, but literally tactics on the pitch, it's not as concrete, is it? That's the, that, that, and that's the point that I'm making. You know, the, the academy at Manchester United, although it has produced good players, good quality players, because young players in the area would want to play for Manchester United, we've obviously got a particular level of resource as well. We, we I'm sure, have had good coaches in the academy during the last you know, seven or eight years since Ferguson left, whatever it, whatever it is now, but probably 10. But ultimately, like I said, the text at Barcelona, which was which didn't just tell you how to play football, but told you, you know, how to think about football, mm. um, yeah. is, is, was on a different level. And actually, I, I, you know, do you, you don't go and watch Man United's kids now and think, oh, that's, that came from Ferguson. You just don't, no. and, and and I'm not saying, and you know, this is nothing against Manchester United. There's nothing against Ferguson because I think they were brilliant. But you know, by the way, we're talking about what a handful of clubs in the shape of what Barcelona have done have ever managed to do. Yes. So it's not like, oh, well, you know, Brighton are doing no, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. no one else has managed <laughs> yeah. to rubber stamp a style of football, a tactics, a way of life in football, if you like, onto their organization in the way that probably Barcelona and Ajax have mm. uh, in the last century. So you know. The f- fact that Ferguson didn't achieve it is nothing against him. And and if anything, to a point, kind of his ability to sort of feel it out a little bit and get bring in the right coaches at the at the right time, and then utilize his strengths, which is that leadership of the group. Mm. That's I think that's sort of that's really impressive to be able to do that. You know, yeah. whereas you know with Guardiola when he talks about himself and you know him being a bit of a genius. Everything he does is often from that playbook. And so you don't have to, you don't need new answers if those mm. answers are kind of are previously there. And you've seen that with, you know, even with John Stones and his sort of change. That's something that Cruyff had done in the past as well. Um, let's run through some of these ripple effects in terms of, uh, <laughs> of Sir Alex's uh, disciples. If Gary Neville never fails at Valencia, <laughs> he may never have become one of the faces of Sky Sports. Might not have. Uh, stepped into the uh, breach at Salford. Yeah. Do you, do you believe in this one? I've I got to say, and it's probably going to be the case for a load of these, um, not just Gary Neville, that this is the thing that I mean about the, the individual rather than the text. All of them, when they took their jobs, the clubs would have been thinking, is he the next for Alex Ferguson? Yeah. And when it's an individual character-led style of management, 
ultimately these people were not Sir Alex as individuals and they could have been great coaches had it been more about the tactics and the football. Yep. But because they went into every club and were like, I have to stamp who I am as a person onto these, these players. They have to be beholden to me. They have to, you know, basically follow all of my instructions to a T. Anyone wavers from that, they're out the door because that's what they'd known. Mm. I think that counted against them because there was only one Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. Do you want that? You guys will know who listen to the podcast. I talk about succession a lot. And uh, at the moment... Do you watch succession? No. But you're Too miss- close to you're, home. You're missing out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, to be fair. So, the, the Logan Roy... Actually, I'm going to give it away. Basically, the, there's these kids that want to be top dogs and they want to behave like the dad, but they can't because the, whatever they say is not heard in that same voice. Mm. And I think you're right. And say someone like... Roy Keane's great example. I think at Sunderland, in that sort of desperate moment, he goes there and they go, "Tell us what to do, and we'll we'll kind of go with it." And it worked. Um, but over a long period of time, you then need to have sort of have the you know the soft touch as, as well as the hard touch. And Roy Keane wasn't able to do that, and he thought he could go down that that Fergie road. And again, it's just that it's that translation of the player and what works for you on the pitch in that way to then the management situation. And I think have trying to element, you know, recreate that Fergie style is just so difficult. You're right, in terms of all those characters. Although generally they kind of had their own ways. Um, and one I think is probably the most successful is one who's kind of stayed away from it, is Mark Robbins. Mark Robbins has done such a great job at Coventry yeah. and you would never suggest that he's, he's a sort of Fergie-esque, would you? No. But one of the things that he's had, which a lot of the others haven't, is time, particularly at one club. He's created his own time, though, I would say. No, no, but do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, he was... Roots. The, he was the stalwart. He was the centrepiece, and he was the figurehead of a difficult time for a club. So they were prepared to stay with him because, you know, he, he at least was the focal point. He gave them some direction. And obviously, off the back of it, he's been able to produce his own team, mm. which has then helped with results. I think that's been massively important because, you know, ultimately the others, probably in terms of their jobs, haven't had more than uh, three or four seasons tops. Most of them gone True. within was 18 like months. 40 odd uh, EFL managers of the 76, I yeah. want to say, have uh, made way this year. I mean, he's, an ex- he's another example, though, and I think we keep getting these and chair people and um, sporting directors and stuff. We don't really lean on them enough to give managers time anymore. Because actually, the ones that get given the most time usually start producing results. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I think in the in the, the modern world, there's so much noise that when there is so much noise, there's like, oh, well, what do we? What can we do? The one thing you can do is get rid of him and bring in someone yeah. new, and so people just sort of revert to that a lot of the time. Uh, just want to say this because he's, he's one of our Spotify brethren. Uh, Alex Ferguson went to watch a Wrexham match in which his son Darren, who's actually had a good managerial career as well, just sort of keeps going back to Peterborough, doesn't he? But uh, was playing uh, in that Wrexham game and Ben Foster was there. So if it wasn't for for Darren Ferguson as a, I mean, quite literally a disciple and a son <laughs> of him. Then ben He's Fo- like a son. Yeah, he's like a son to him. <laughs> then we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have had Ben Foster in our lives. That's the point I'm trying to get mm. to. Final question on this. Who, so we know Johan Cruyff probably top of this list, right? In terms of influence on football, British football. Who's had more influence on British football, Pep or Fergie for you? I still think we need to let Guardiola's uh, 
Guardiola's had uh, such a huge effect on world football. Ultimately, you're going to see like hints of him in the tactics of virtually every football manager for the next generation of, of coaches. Everyone will try and replicate something that his team does well because there are so many. I mean, there there are, there are so many different facets of what Manchester City under Pep have done and continue to do and continue to revamp themselves, which is which is amazing. I think, just to go back to a point you made earlier, Guardiola is taking something from Ferguson. For the first time in his career, he has to do what Ferguson did so well, which was create multiple yeah. title-winning, Champions League-challenging sides. Regenerate, yeah. And he's managed to get some players out, some new players in, who bring something slightly different. Amazing, but he's also tweaked his tactics, Guardiola, and he's managed to keep Manchester City. He's going to have to do that again soon as well, right? Because De Bruyne, Gundogan, two crucial players for them, yeah. are going to make way soon enough. Yeah, uh, but again, can he bring in players that fit that mould, at least to get them to the next? I still think they're another three years away. I think we're seeing, we're currently in kind of the second season of the new Manchester right. City. And they're bringing Haaland, they get rid of the likes of Jesus and, and whatnot. So I think we'll see if, like, another couple of tweaks. But ultimately, they might be set for another three, three, four years after that. Even De Bruyne and Gundogan, maybe not at the club. Final question on this. I think I don't know if I answered the last question you asked me. Go on. Which Did was you? which was who's going to have more of a a, <laughs> a legacy? Oh, sorry. Yeah, if of you, course. If you, if you like, um, I do. I do think it's going to be Guardiola when all is said and done, because what he's done is so revolutionary. But I actually think Sir Alex Ferguson, again in his day every coach wanted their team to play like his team and he was the answer to what is successful football. So, you know, Guardiola is now what, what Sir Alex Ferguson was then mm. at the end of his career when, when you know, when the coaching board with all the little tactics is hung up. It's already hung up. It's already <laughs> hung up, but you know what I mean? So yeah, folded up and put in the corner. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, then I think, uh, you know, it, it probably will be Guardiola. I think it has to be, you know, unless... There is a, that new revolutionary who who puts forward this new idea because the fact that what Cruyff has, his ideology is still providing the answers. That's the problem I've got here. It's because he's, you know, this has then allowed, you know, what feels revolutionary in, in terms of Vincent Company. It's just it's just the answers with his little added intensity on top of it. And that final question I was going to ask you, even. Even his rival, even Pep Guardiola's rival now in Eric Ten Hag, is essentially a bit of a disciple. And so, yeah. can can Eric Ten Hag ever get the better of Man City and Pep Guardiola when the answers that he will be finding his way to are ones that Pep already is ingrained in? No, but and knows? I, this is the beauty of what Pep is doing, actually, because, like I say, he's like the Heston Blumenthal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of of Cruyff's uh, of Cruyff's tactics, in that he's taking the basis a chicken, sure, yeah, and he's putting a rocket a rocket yeah, up, turning it into ice cream. Yeah, this yeah. is what I mean, right? He's he's doing something that is 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 based within what Cruyff did, but is becoming Guardiola's own thing, and he's basically saying to the other managers, "There you go, you know, that's that's the, that's that's the text, but you can interpret it how you want." Like, mm. and 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 I think Ten Hag can take something from that. Arteta can take something from that because I think Arteta's largely done kind of exactly what he learned under Pep. He now needs to find an addition to that and other managers will do that and then we get the next generation of great coaches. That's the beauty of it. So um, at the moment, everyone's using him as the blueprint but but things will, you know, everyone will tweak something and hopefully get the best out of it. So what I think you're saying is Ten Hag, Vincent Company, Arteta, they need to find 
today's air fryer. Uh, listen, I, I think the main difference is... <laughs> the air fryer that can save you time, allow you to cook that food quicker. Me, me and Loz had a train journey just quickly. And we were talking about this phrase everyone's talking about, cooking, let him cook and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, I think it's maybe a podcast on its own. But again, for you guys listening, a bit of homework here. I was saying, <laughs> he was talking about Sam Allardyce. It's like, is Sam Allardyce, when they went one day up against you guys, is he cooking? <laughs> I don't think he's cooking it. I think he's just heavily seasoning. <laughs> um, and I just want to know who's, is that, and that was, Loz was saying that sometimes people think that the managers are cooking, like Emery. Is Emery cooking? He's not. He's microwaving no. currently. <laughs> and there's a million different ways to cook. Okay. But I'm intrigued to know. What, so here's homework for everyone. Arteta, is he cooking or is he microwaving or is he air fried? <laughs> What's happening here? Right. We'll be back after this. Chelsea, they've got a new manager in the uh, most long drawn out negotiations, mm-hmm. which I find uh, hilarious with all this. Tottenham, they were talking about how they're not going to have an interview with Nagelsmann. Talk to everyone, like, do interviews. Yeah. I did find it hilarious, this sort of like arrogance that, oh, no, we, no, we didn't even talk to him, which is obviously just fear that the press will go, they turned you down. Yeah, yeah. And Nagelsmann has turned you down. Anyway, that's another <laughs> podcast. But Chelsea look like they've got Pochettino, former. Tottenham manager. I've got a whole list of questions here. I'm going to kind of try and figure out what's necessary for Poch to to thrive at Chelsea. I guess the first thing to ask you, Hugh, is how do you feel about him coming into the club and what do you think about Chelsea generally at the moment? Oh, it's an absolute mess generally <laughs> at the moment, to be honest. <laughs> I, I was thinking this the other day, uh, sc- uh, earlier this morning, actually, and I was like, I was on the tube. And I was like, what does Poch need to do when he gets to Chelsea? I was like, the first thing he needs to do is Ted Todd Bowley never, ever, ever, ever come in the changing room and speak to the players, ever. One. Like, you can come on the preseason tour and say, good luck. And you can come to the final home game of the season and say, thank you very much. Yeah. Like, I don't want you to in any way think that you can control the group of players. You know, going back to Johan Cruyff, that's one of the first things that, first piece of advice he gave Pep Guardiola was never allow your chairman into your dressing room. Yeah. Interesting. Because um, I I do think there's been this kind of weird, we've spent so much money on a football club, we need to control every element. Like, okay, we've seen enough. Yeah. You need to hire the right people and you need to stay as far away from the football as possible because there's a, a real big chance you've thrown at least 500 million quid down the drain mm. within the first year. So we've had enough of that. Thanks very much. Um, I, I do think they're a bit of a mess generally, but they're not a million miles away like everyone thinks they are because ultimately I think there's high potential in the group. You know, we were all talking about these great young players that they've brought in. They may have overpaid for them, but ultimately what you have is young players, hungry players, streamline the squad, give them some direction, and hopefully you start seeing results. And I think it can turn around for Chelsea a lot quicker than it can, I think, for other clubs in terms of playing that good football. Pochettino is a great appointment, but it might be the wrong club, to be perfectly honest. The one thing that I think about Chelsea is, I think it's a pretty ruthless group of fans who have been used to getting rid of the manager as soon as it goes wrong. Pochettino is one of the nicest managers in football and his success has been based around a group of players and a family spirit. They they all come together. He puts his trust in them when everyone else is saying they're not good enough. You know, he gives them the the motivation out there to go out and play. He's you know, 
the the, the last half of Arsene Wenger's time at, um, at Arsenal, you might kind of take and see as Pochettino's time at, at Spurs. It didn't work for Pochettino at Paris Saint-Germain. And I, I actually, I lost a lot of respect. Respect is the wrong thing. I, I respect the guy massively. But in terms of being able to go into a, a terrible culture and change it around, that's what I was kind of wanting to see yeah. from Pochettino. And he might have to do the same here at Chelsea. And I know a lot is made about, oh, he couldn't manage the big figures at Paris Saint-Germain. And it was such a, the club was such a mess. They told him what to do. And he just, he just went along with it. I, I get all of those no things. No one could though. But I don't care. <laughs> what do you mean? You don't I, care? I, I, I don't care that other people didn't get it right. I don't, I don't care. Because you're, if I'm talking about Pochettino, right. you should be good enough. Like oh, when, so when, you, when, you take, when you take a job and someone says like, by the way, everyone else was terrible at this job. That's why we've hired you. You don't go, I'm going to be terrible too. But what I would, <laughs> but, no, but, but, but what I would ask is, so what's going on here? Why is everyone failing? But that's what I mean. Yeah. I expected him to go in there and be like, let's address this. Because he now has to do that at Chelsea. It's not as toxic yeah. as it was at Paris Saint-Germain. I don't think the expectation is going to be as high as it is at Paris Saint-Germain. But there is a cultural issue at Chelsea, for sure. Mm. And he has to turn that around very, very quickly. He's not necessarily going to be able to get all of these players out of the club straight away. He's not going to have much time to assess them in pre-season. Certainly not under the... the you know, It's not like he's coming in the middle of the season where he goes, what are they like on game day? He's just going to see them in pre-season. He's going to get to know them and he's going to have to make a choice as to who his players are. That's going to be difficult for him. So I, I, he needs to take a sledgehammer to the culture at Chelsea. Right. In a weird way, his sledgehammer is his nice personality. Because, okay. because in the, the way that he changes the culture of Chelsea is to get people to, to love him. Right. Right? As in these Chelsea yes. these Chelsea fans have not loved one of their managers since Jose Mourinho, like loved them. So we've got look, so Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I I hear what you're saying. In an emotional sense. No, I get not that. Liked the, them a lot. The, sorry, you're talking about the fans here or the players. The fans. The fans, yes. So, this is all part of it. This is all part of the culture. Sure. Because the players that the, the success that he had before was getting players to play for him because of who he was. Right. That I, I'm not going to... Like, his tactics were good, but he's not a game-changing tactical manager. No. Like, he had an excellent defence. He had players that... In, forward players that were enjoying themselves, going out there, playing football with a smile on their faces. Like, he needs to bring a smile to Chelsea's players and to the fans and be like, by the way, guys, we're going to go on a great journey. Like, and, and he needs to be lovable. And he is a lovable I, guy. He I is think, a lovable guy. I think you get... He's look. He's got more clout than Graham Potter, and that's huge in this, I think, because I think clout does matter when you're going to be managing for Chelsea. So you've spoken about a lot of things here, and I think in terms of those sort of five things, let's see what we can get to here. But in terms of working with the players, that's the players is one, the fans is one. Mm. I think I think culture as as snobby as it sounds at times is is certainly something in there. The hierarchy is another one, mm. and. I think, you know, how well we've got players there, but sort of how bloated that squad is, I think is something as well. Because you, you've got to trim the squad down yeah. first and then you've got to get but them think, to play. I, think, I think when we said players, we really meant the relationship between him and the players. How does he get them to play yeah. for him? And that is, I think, aside from what tactics is he going to play? How are they going to be successful on the football pitch? So I have one, there's one problem that stops me from going, love it, love this appointment. I think it makes complete sense. Because... What you're saying in terms of his connection with the players, what he did at Spurs, because look, you've got you've got him at this could be PSG to a point. Chelsea have elements of PSG in them. They also have elements of that Spurs side that he took over and, and did brilliantly with. 
the reason he did brilliantly with them is because he did get rid of Adebayor, uh, Benoit, Asokotu, Aaron Lennon, the people that weren't up to it. There's a great article by, uh, I think, Jack Pitt Brook. And he was talking about how, and I'm sure everyone's heard this phrase that he said before, he said, you don't, you're not signed to play for Tottenham. You're signed to train for Tottenham. And that intensity of the training in that first sort of six months year, he didn't sort of get everyone out. But by the end of it, he then went, oh, okay, you, you, Adebayor, shock, and not up for all this extra running at the end of, uh, of of training and things like that. Whereas the young, malleable Harry Kane, Danny Rose, all of those guys, Daily Alley, who wa- were hungry and wanted to make something of themselves, they jumped on board. And with that, they created this exciting team, right? There's lots of those elements in that Chelsea mm-hmm. squad. There's a lot of young players that want to do something that have the potential to do something. So that side of it, I, I really like. But the thing that keeps getting in my way is that exactly what you said at the start. is It's the right manager and it's the right project. But it's the wrong club because he will not get that year to go sort of gently because the fans will, I think the fans will try try their best. Certain sections, sorry, not all Chelsea fans, of course not. But certain sections will, it will be the first thing that people go to. And I just feel like unless he starts really well, and I'm not totally sure he can start really well because there's so much work to be done, he's going to struggle. This is what's going to get eaten up. Th- but this is what brings me back to the point that I said he needs to make people love him. But I think nice is a dangerous um, ingredient at Chelsea. But, I don't think but, they want nice. But no, but I'm not. Listen, I, I'm not saying be nice. He's a nice guy, but I'm not saying be nice as in outwardly, just like oh, what a what a what a lovely bloke. But he's you know like <laughs> I'm not saying that. Like you need to have a bit of needle about you to, to coach Chelsea. Yeah, I'm not saying that. But if it goes wrong, if there are seven or eight games where it's not going right for Chelsea. He needs to be able to come out and have that, like I say, that relationship with the fans where you can say, sure. we're on a journey or I've got it in under control. And people go like, do you know what? Let's give him time. And I, I, at Chelsea... Can I that occur? This is what I mean. With a Spurs legendary manager, to a point. I, I think it can, but I think it's also come at a very good time for Pochettino in terms of having a squad full of young players and seeing what Arsenal did this year. Right. Because it's very easy for people, and it will come out in all the conversations that we have about Chelsea at the start of next year. Will it work for Arsenal? Mm. They gave Arteta time when it was going wrong, and look what happened to them. So it might get him his three years of his deal to actually carve something out with his team. You, and also, also, you can turn around and say, but these are kids. And that's, I, I know it sounds weird, it's such a good thing for him to be able to yeah. say. Because had he been handed a Chelsea squad that was full of you know, 50 cap internationals, mm. he would have six months to really get something out of that team. I think he gets the whole of next season, even if they finish top six, as long as we start That's seeing something. That's not what we've seen though, Hugh. No, but the, the, Chelsea can't be the same every year and expect. If they if they think that they are still owned and run by Roman Abramovich, then they're wrong. The club has to change. The expectations have to change. The reality is different. Todd Bowley doesn't know what he's doing. Certainly, he's no Roman Abramovich. No, but yeah. th- th- that's the reality. So now you go to, to Pochettino, who does, but he, if he says to you that you have to take it on the chin, if he comes out and says, this will be a long process, I think Chelsea fans have to accept that. They just have to, because 
if you put pressure on Pochettino, you, you, basically you turn into Paris Saint-Germain and the fans can make that happen. Mm-hmm. Because if you say you need to be top four or you need to, like Chelsea fans saying they need to challenge for the title next season, it's absolute nonsense. If you come out and say that yeah. straight away as a Chelsea fan, we need to challenge for the title. This is Chelsea. I, I've been there. I'm a Man United fan, okay? Delete that phrase from your vernacular. <laughs> yeah. This is a different Chelsea now. Um you know, and you give a manager time, you might be the, the team that's challenging for titles every year in three seasons. These young players develop. We might see from this group world-class players emerge. The manager needs time to make that happen. It uh, but, feels back to front, though, is the only thing I would say as well. Like In terms of Arsenal, what happened there was... And actually, to be fair, Arteta came in and the squad <laughs> recruitment and building was an utter mess. And he had the power to cull it, yeah. you know, and make those big calls... And obviously, an FA Cup at the start helps him survive. And then a few good moments helps him survive. And actually, some strength from above helps him survive as well, which they didn't do with Graham Potter. Now, I'm not saying Graham Potter was the right guy. I think he probably wasn't, again, for Chelsea, because I think you have to have that power in your voice. You have to have that gravitas and that clout to survive at Chelsea. But he he's going to have to make a, a real cull here. Yeah. Because what you're saying in terms of that investment, because there's this idea that it's got to be one in, one out with Chelsea as well. You've got a squad there that is just so flabby in really odd areas. You still need to bring in a couple of players. I read this morning that he wants a goalkeeper and a striker. and that, That's fine. But what Arsenal did was they, they kind of cleared the decks and then went, okay, Odegaard, and and it's you know how Arsenal play completely. With Chelsea, can you do that whilst whilst allowing these these new signings to thrive? Because it is back to front in that. No, sense. no, no. It's so bloated at Chelsea that you just take the money. It's the moment it's offered, right? So if someone makes a bid for one of your players on FIFA, <laughs> you, you just accept. Right. There's no negotiations. Don't try and put a couple of extra million pounds on it because that's the thing. When Arsenal was just like, look, if someone's going to so take So you it, think it, they've it, got to humble themselves and go, look, okay, we thought this might be a decent idea. It's clearly not. Let's let's recoup as much money as we can. If someone's going to take them for a half-decent amount of money, you let them go. Yeah. Because otherwise you will start the season with the same issue. There'll be seven or eight players hanging around who you don't want. And you, mm. you need to be like intent with that. So... If Leo, some people might get a bargain off Chelsea. That's what I expect. Fine. Also, if you loan a couple of the like, I, I don't know if necessarily anyone will buy Lukaku. But well, I will think he, this is but, a huge but, problem. But will he get loaned out again? Probably. Like I, I could yeah. could imagine that screams Turkey, doesn't it? No, yeah, <laughs> screams like Tottenham. To say. Like Tottenham. It, like oh, if, if Harry's still been there, if, you never if, know. If, no, but if Harry Kane goes, you're still like, well, we, yeah, we, they might, they might. Let's put it this way. I know it's not a Tottenham conversation, but. They're not. In, they they need to invest in the squad, yeah. So they might want to use the Harry Kane money in other areas. But can we get on loan a player who we pay half their wages to, mm. who can fill the gap for a year? Maybe we get a two year loan, that kind of thing. They they need to be clever. But that's a different conversation. So the other problem you've got is it's hard to be a Premier League club and sell players these days because the five other leagues don't pay the know, wages. Don't pay the wages. So you got. To, You've got to sell to another Premier League team, and and it's going to be interesting to see which one, which of those players that are both assets that you're okay to let go, but also they want to be assets that you've got enough on their contract that you're you're happy to let them go. And then finally, the idea that that if their contract is running down, if you want them or not, they've got to go. That's the mess that they've got themselves in. So it, I don't even, I bet Pochettino has a bit of a plan, of course, but. 
he's kind of gonna like you say there's gonna they're gonna have to kind of put up everyone for sale to a point apart from you would say mudrick Todd go okay you need to make that work enzo fernandez you, you need to make that work but it's gonna be interesting to see the which players go it could be the likes of chalabar it could be the likes of mm. Gallagher, it could be the likes of Colwell, regardless of him being yeah. a good player. It could be the likes of Mount. It could be that whole sort of, uh, you know, English core could yeah. be on its way, right? Yeah, no, listen, like I say, I don't think they're going to mess about here. So they, yeah. they shouldn't. Otherwise, they're going to be involved in several sagas right until the end of the transfer window. Like the, the players that are easiest to get rid of, they will try and offload early in the transfer window, or at least they should be doing that. So I don't think Pochettino will even take time to really spend much of pre-season with those players it'll be quite evident who you know he won't want because he'll want to bring in some players above that listen Chelsea again you're just gonna have to learn from your mistakes Todd Bowley like if you need to pay 50% of these players salaries until the end of their contract as opposed to 100% of their salaries and they just sit in the training ground and never in the match day squad you're just gonna have to bite the bullet on that and learn that that's how European football works mm. like it just is what it is yeah so I I I think Pochettino is smart enough, and this is maybe one of the reasons that we've been in these conversations for so long, that he's kind of sitting there saying, you know, what's your approach going to be? And they're having these discussions almost as if he's already got the job. And that's why it's been several weeks where we're like, like let's be serious about who's staying, who's going, what our approach is going to be. Let's come to an agreement on that before I sign this contract. Mm. I'm, I'm, there's no way I want to be sitting here on September the 1st with 10 players that I don't want. Yeah. Because I think that's it. You know, I've said this a few times. Just like being valuable is one thing. You know, in terms of in the market, feeling valuable is the difference, and that's why Arsenal have done as well as they have. Yes, they could have used some more players, and it's probably what's hurt them a little bit. But that's what Pochettino needs to f- figure out, and and that's what any team that does well, you know, what the starting eleven is, and that Spurs team, you knew what it was, and 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 they allowed that chemistry to to occur, and there's just it's just so flabby, isn't it? I'm fascinated to see how he sort of manoeuvres it all. But that thing I just keep coming back to, I just, I think your credit in the bank gets accumulated over quite a few things, you know, like what you've done in the game previously, the style of play, you know, if you're a Chelsea man or whoever, you know, whatever club it might be, that element of it for me, I think will make life, could make life difficult for, for them. And he's got to do well because the accounts for next year are going to be, pretty painful and there's not going to be any European money in there as well so you need to find different ways of doing that and that's and now initially it can be player sales but again everyone knows that they need to sell yeah. so they're not going to give them much money but the, so. other, the other thing is when everyone knows that you need to sell you make them an offer Chelsea they say no and you say alright I'll talk to you three hours before the <laughs> deadline yeah. and see if you've changed your mind then yeah. and that's how they end up with starting the season with loads of players that's that they a don't great want. shout the ripple effect of all that spending is an outrageous deadline day for Chelsea, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, in terms yeah. of players on the on their way out. In terms of a couple of players that could come in, as I say, that you know, there's this idea it's going to be one in, one out. Any chance he gets Kane? Yeah, no, I think there is a chance he gets Kane. It's all about the Spurs legacy, isn't it? And whether he wants to wear a he Chelsea literally shirt. Burns that legacy. That's the the move. You that and Arsenal, obviously. I, I don't think he does. I think he because does. because Tottenham are just. It's painful that one. No, but Poch I mean... and Kane starting the season at at Chelsea. Ouch. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's not going to hurt and that, that Tottenham fans will never, you know, but he, he'll stay a Spurs legend because ultimately they haven't offered him any opportunity to do with his career what his talents deserve. And they, I think a lot of Spurs fans hold their, hold their hands up now and say, like, if we were offering him at least Champions League, then it would be like, come on or, you know, whatever. But yeah. 
other clubs are spending six, you know, more money in one window than we spent in the last five years. So the one uh, thing I say with him going to Chelsea, going, you're not playing European football. How close are you really? We spoke about earlier in the podcast how good Arsenal need to be in addition to the, what they've been this year to get anywhere near Man City. So for Kane, it's that's not going to get you your trophies. I, I, listen, I, I've, I've said before, there is a strong chance in my mind that Harry Kane waits until he's on a free transfer, which opens up pretty much every big club in Europe to get in his talents. Like Barcelona might be interested at that time. Real Madrid might be, he's on a free, you know, Benzema's, all right, five years older than him. So even then you go, all right, we, we know he's a little bit older, but we'll get three good years mm. on a free out of Harry Kane. He might be playing for Real Madrid in a year's time. Bayern Munich, you know, it does offer offer up a vast sum of opportunities to True. him that aren't available now because of a, a £90 million pound or yeah. £80, £90 million pound price tag. So it wouldn't surprise me if he stays at Spurs for another year. And then again, you get to look back and say, like, are Man United actually any better? Are they going to provide me with an opportunity to win trophies? You know, if that's who wants him now, et cetera, et cetera. If I'm Tottenham, I want the money. I know Spurs fans say, oh, we keep him for an extra year, he might stay. I think no. that, that's gone now. Yeah. Interesting times uh, for Tottenham and for Chelsea are kind of linked within each other over the season, it feels like a little bit. But yeah, big question there. Will it, Is this going to be more like PSG or is it going to be more like Spurs? Because I think they're kind of slap banging between the two of them mm, in terms of mm. the squad size. Uh, Fascinating times for Poch. Good luck to him, though, I guess. Although I'm a QPR fan, so hopefully they lose every game. <laughs> Finally, Southampton, uh, the relegation. Just want to touch it on it for a second because there could be some ripple effects here. Uh, as I say, that podcast we did last week was really interesting. And actually, they were, you know, Harry was quite positive about mm. Southampton. I think the one thing that everyone needs to keep in mind is there's two sides to this. One, I think it's never been a better time to go down because of the, the parachute payments. And football clubs are just smarter than they they have been previously and with Southampton with the youth that they've got there as I said on that podcast I feel like the reason they've gone down is that recruitment but the reason actually they're in probably a healthier position than some of those other clubs that could go down okay Everton is those exact group of players where you could get a lot of money on the way back a couple of ripple effects possibly are um, they've got to play Brighton and Liverpool in the last couple of games could uh, they help decide the top four race but they're 20th anyway, so they'll probably lose those games anyway. Um, does relegation now force Man City to buy back Lavia, despite uh, his buyback clause not becoming active until next year because he's linked with Man United? Do you think he goes into Man United play straight away? No, but I think, like lot, I, think right? that, I think we've seen over the last sort of 10 games there's a need of depth at Manchester United, and so he'd play a lot of games. He looks mm. a very, very good player. I remember I did a Belgium game um, at the World Cup and I did a little interview with um, a Belgian journalist who was there covering the game as well. And, and just before we did it, we were just having a chat generally about Belgian football. And he was like, we all think Romeo Lavia is the next, you know, 100 cap Belgium international. He's going to be incredible. Wow. And I hadn't really seen Lavia play before sure. then. So I was like, really? You know, he wasn't he wasn't involved in the game. Um, he was injured for the World Cup, I think. But he was just like, yeah, you know, he's the next one. You know, we've got Kevin De Bruyne now. We think Lavia is going to be a world beater type thing, world class player. And he's just grown into the season after coming back from injury. Um, and it, it, look, Man United need a player like that. I think he would play. I'd love to see someone like Frankie de Jong at Man United, but Lavi is going to have suitors. It's an interesting one. If Calvin Phillips goes, do you get Lavia back into that role, yeah. train him up? I think it would be a good idea if he's come through the system. It's a great bit of business by Southampton. You can't, again, like, start seeing you kind of thought, oh, they, they feel a little bit, they sort of haven't ripened yet as a group here. And there's a massive disconnect between the older players and the younger players, according to reports. 
but you know you've still got exciting players that you can sell off and at the very least you're going to get 40 million for him which puts mm. you in a really nice place in the championship and the championship is just chock a block with some big clubs you know we speaking about Ipswich earlier coming up Plymouth Fool, and Schumacher has been amazing they'll be a tough team in terms mm. of coming up but by the way if I'm Southampton I loan Lavia I, I, unless they desperately need the money because obviously they lose out on 100 million quid whatnot yeah. so fair or enough. if the money's too good but, to but ultimately their squad I think out. is now full of players who don't earn that much because they're all coming out of under 23 squads so they could... well, and they've all got 40% clauses uh, exactly in well, so, so if they can manage that they obviously have a healthy crowd at Southampton then it'll be interesting because if you send Lavia at me I'm like I call West Ham tomorrow and I'm like, do you want Romeo La- David? Do you want Romeo Lavia? Like right. Declan Rice is it's a leaving. bit like a, an Anguissa yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for and, Fulham. And, and then if we don't if we don't get promoted, fine, we sell him. And if he's had another good season in the Premier League, he's probably worth more than forty million yeah. quid. If we go back up, we get Romeo Lavia in our team. So nice. I think you know it's so early in his Southampton career, it would really boil down to money. But I'd be keen to not sell him if he wants to play top flight football. Loan him out. Stephen Gerrard is the favourite. To I, be the new manager, it's, it's, Wayne Rooney, eight to one to take both, over. Both of them are utter madness. Uh, if those two, if even them get the job, I will find a hat and eat it because with Ankerson as the sporting director, who's at Brentford, expect a random name you've never heard of who's smarter than all of these lads. Yeah, yeah. And I, I said this: it's it's hard to be an ex pro now and be a manager now because I think we look at those names. You go, you you two probably aren't as smart. Or I haven't got the hunger. If it was like, to work. if it was like Will Still, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, at, at I think they go fancy. I think they go uh, football hipster for sure. Because obviously, Sport Republic—that's been their whole thing. Data driven. They signed nine players last summer who didn't have a Premier League appearance. They added five more in January to get them out of trouble who'd never played in the Premier yeah, League. Disaster. And I think, obviously, watching the EFL, you know, if they have a manager that plays football, and a lot of them have come out of very, you know, high quality academies they could be a force to be reckoned with because there's, there's speed in that team for sure. Yep. There's skill in that team. Yep. You know, a lot of these players, I look at Alcaraz and I think, oh, if you're in the championship next season, you're going to be a serious player. Mm. You know, he looks pretty good in the Premier League. But then I'm like, can they keep him? You know, there's, a, there's quite a few of those players. But even even the ones that kind of haven't got going at Southampton, I still kind of think, He'd probably be a decent player in the EFL. On Oachu, yeah, you know th- these kind of players. I still think oh, he'd totally. be pretty good. So. I totally agree. I think you know, yeah. If you want to chuck a bet on someone early doors, I think Southampton is a, is a really good shout because I think you'll have the players that don't want to be there. You can you've got options here if you're Southampton. The players that don't want to be there, go. And the players that do are talented yeah. because you got them because they thought they're going to be playing Premier League football. Yeah. So I think it's bizarrely it might be one where you've got to go backwards a step and you know but take your hundred million and so many and of those players forward. are inexperienced that you're kind of you just turn around to them and say, You're gonna play a forty six games season this year yeah. and we're probably gonna win a lot of matches and you're gonna enjoy it. Mm. So you can go if you want and sit on the bench at another club or you can actually get the experience that yeah. means next time you're in the Premier League you can cope. But they need the right manager. They do need like they the need right a manager. footballing manager for sure. Yeah. Um, you know all, all the typical British names that have been thrown I don't up hate, I don't hate the Wayne Rooney bring Rossinia back with you as well no, maybe no no no, no, no. I'd it. rather see Liam Rossinia get the job himself yeah true, true. to be honest no I, I, I do think they need a footballing coach Okay. I, I spoke about Scott Parker I will do it again bring uh, him back in again and um, I think it would be interesting to see Scott Parker at Southampton and I was I was basically rebuffed and told he thinks he's a a Premier League manager now, you wouldn't take a job in the Championship, and I'm kind of like, 
that I hear that from so many managers or people talking about managers who they've yeah. chatted to and um, yeah. one must beware hubris. It's mm. crucial. Mm. Uh, right, Hugh, what a joy. And that was a bumper edition, but it was sorry, so much guys. fun. No, don't say sorry. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, hopefully you guys did as well. Um, Hugh, you've got your own podcast. I do. Want to give it a little plug? That is the game podcast from The Times, available <laughs> wherever you're listening to this. Uh, yeah, and you can catch me on TalkSport Thursday, Friday night, 7 till 10 p.m. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be doing the playoff highlights uh, all throughout the weekend, 27th, 28th, 29th on ITV as well, each and every evening if you miss the live game. So you'll see me Love around. That. Premiership Rugby too if you're a rugby yeah, fan. There yeah, there you go. Yeah. And you're definitely worth a follow. He's uh, on Twitter. He's uh, yeah, He doesn't hold back. The last Don't year. like trains. Yeah, and he's not, he's not <laughs> keen on trains. So if you don't like trains, and then get involved. Right, uh, we will be back. Uh, we're going to have two podcasts this week. And the next one's going to be really interesting. Chris Ryan returns to the Ripple Effect. Uh, Loz, I think, is going to join us as well. Um, so, yeah, make sure you check out that one. Thanks for listening. Speak soon.